0: Hello and welcome to Velina's talk. This is the third uh, episode of the second season of uh, the digital format. And uh, today's episode is focused on the future, as well as the role of technology on politics and society. My name is Velina Chakarova and I'm the director at the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy based in Vienna, Austria. My work includes research, consulting, and lectures on the global system transformation and geostrategy of global actors. This podcast is produced in partnership with Bharat Varta. This is India's leading podcast producer on politics, policy, and culture. My guest today is Tracy Follows. She is a futurist appearing in a list of the top 50 female futurists in the world in Forbes regularly commenting on the future of technology, society, and identity. She runs FutureMate. This is a strategic foresight and futures consultancy, uh, working with global brands and businesses to help them spot trends, develop foresight, and fully prepare for what comes next. Welcome to this digital talk, Tracy.
1: Thank you, Valina. It's so lovely to be here. I've long admired this... uh this content series and your work. So thank you for the
0: invite. Thank you also for being with me today because we have a quite of an exciting agenda. Uh, you have also published a book, The Future of You, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology? And we will very much touch upon on uh, some of the key insights from the book. But before we start, so basically before we start digging, I would like to ask a very simple question, which is, What is strategic foresight? What is futurism? And what is in fact your professional background?
1: Oh, okay, I'll start with the easy bit. My professional background is I I actually worked for over 20 years in advertising and marketing and I was client side as well as agency side for some quite big tech companies like BT. Um, So I guess one of the reasons I'm interested in technology and always have been, Um, but I I left all of that thinking and that strategy work around insights and consumer insights and trends to set up my own company in 2015 um, which I really wanted to get ahead of the curve and focus more on strategic foresight than strategic insight because I'd worked out that by the time you've worked out what an insight is and actioned it (laughs) everything's passed you by (laughs) so that you have to be much more forward looking and I'd always been interested in innovation. So for me, strategic foresight um, is a lot to do with modeling and mapping um, and thinking of what's going on around us in the world as some kind of system that can be kind of plotted and understood. And I think that really helps when you're working in quite fast moving environments, if you're working in sort of trends and culture and fashion. And as we know now, sort of, you know, digital technologies where communications is changing really fast as well. So I think it's great because it enables us to have an anticipatory mindset, but it also allows us to prepare and rehearse for things, some things that might never happen um, and some things that very definitely will happen. And it's an exciting place to be because I think one of the things about the work, and I don't know if you agree, Belina, is I've never really thought of the future as singular. I've always thought of the future as plural. It can um, manifest in different ways and we have different directions and choices to make. I suppose that's what I enjoy doing um, with strategic foresight, creating those alternative futures with other people um, and then trying to plot Uh, our way towards our preferred future. But if it's not our preferred future and the worst possible future ends up manifesting that at least we are prepared for that in some way.
0: And speaking of uh, alternative futures, what are the biggest risks uh, that you anticipate um, ahead uh, for 2022? Probably there are also, in your view, some risks that have been accelerated by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but certainly there are also new risks in your kind of mapping of, uh, of uh, alternative uh, scenarios.
1: I think, well, there's a huge amount of risks that are still going to sort of um, play out. And one could think they're still part of COVID and not necessarily sort of after COVID. They're like the secondary or tertiary effects of a biological virus we even today sitting here in the UK obviously the news is wall-to-wall about food shortages lorry driver shortages energy problems with um, delivering energy and um, some of the smaller energy supplies kind of shutting down and going out of business Um, and you and I and many other people um, have been sort of either warning about this or it's certainly been on our radar as one of the alternative futures but these are some of the secondary tertiary effects that are obviously going to happen after you've had a virus and after the political um, actors have taken some of the choices that they've taken which is to lock down um, populations and quarantine healthy people and not just quarantine people who are poorly which is what we've always done in the past but we've decided to do it a different way this time. And of course, there's a huge amount of effects and implications to come out from that, which will never have really been seen before because we've never, well not never, we've very seldom quarantined so many healthy people for such a long time. So I guess one of the biggest risks is going to be over resources, resources of all kinds, but particularly essential services and essential resources. And I think for a long time, we've been listening to particularly futurists, I guess, talking about the age of abundance, you know, how we don't really have scarcity anymore. Um, Well, (laughs) we're about to get slapped in the face, I think, uh, with um, quite a lot of scarcity. And I just wonder how people are going to cope with that. So on the one hand, there's the issue around there actually being scarcity of resources that we have taken for granted for so long. And a couple of generations now won't even, won't even understand you know, what a candle is probably. I'm talking about the West. And then I wonder what the effects of that will be, how people will cope with it. Will they be able to cope physically and mentally? Have people prepared for that? Even being a possibility, do people even think about where their water is going to come from? if the tap is turned off for a day or, or longer. And I guess that is one of the big risks. People might not cope psychologically with that very well, I think. But, you know, that remains to be seen. And on that point, I do think we've got a huge risk with mental health. We've now got generations of school children who I was just reading today, um, the figures are around their depleting mental health and resilience, and it's hardly surprising because it's been one thing after another that's hit them and there's been no relief. It's like absolutely relentless bad news, negativity, and sort of apocalyptic sort of visions of the future. I think we've got a generation of kids that, if they aren't traumatized, they've done very well to to avoid feeling like that. But I I wonder how many people of a young age don't even realize how they've been affected. So I think those are two of the biggest biggest risks coming out. interesting you asked me about risks, not threats, because one of the things I think is that we are increasingly talking about risks as if they're threats. Every time I pick up a government piece of uh, like a policy paper, I'm I'm reading about trends all the time. We've made this seamless, almost invisible um, shift to talk about threats, as if there's nothing we can do about it. And we need to take on a some kind of action that is out of all you know at out, out all areas of magnitude <laughs> that we've ever have done before, and take away the personal responsibility of individuals who really are quite used to managing risks given their own individual circumstances or their family circumstances or the context of their local community. so it's interesting you you, you framed it like that, and um, I do think one of the big risks is that we stop talking about risks and we start talking about threats. <laughs> that would be a bad thing but it's happening even now.
0: Well I would even go a step further because you now made the point about the risks and would actually ask you what would be your three uh, most significant systemic risks uh, for the future and let me just maybe for for the audience um, uh, define systemic risks i mean this is a new term basically it appeared as one following the um, uh, financial crisis in 2007-2008 uh, due to the fact that the uh, Lemon Brothers collapse unleashed uh, a contagion throughout the global financial, economic and trade systems with unprecedented uh, consequences, which you also mentioned with second, third order uh, effects. So what would be uh, this kind of systemic risks? Uh, one of them was defined following the Lemon Brothers collapse as Um, as uh, the too big to fail bank Mm. or banks uh, meanwhile of course which by the way uh, after uh, (laughs) 2007-2008 became even bigger and bigger Uh, so what would be your three systemic risks um, that uh, really really (laughs) would keep you awake in the night?
1: (laughs) Um, I think well One of one of the biggest risks is obviously, and you can speak in a way more informed uh, manner than me about this. It feels like we are at risk of uh, a proper war, like a proper global war. Now, I don't think that necessarily is kinetic. There is definitely maybe we're even in it at the moment where maybe we're at the beginning of it in some sort of proxy version of it. But it definitely feels like there's some sort of fourth generation information warfare and I do wonder about the use of artificial intelligence in that and that feels like a really systemic risk. Who is wielding the weapons of AI? Um, do we really even know that um, because it feels very much in the background and it's difficult for everybody, everyday people to Kind of get their heads around, but what we do know is that there's all kinds of messaging flying around, which feels like we're just watching it. It feels like there are um, certain players having their own battle in the information and media space. Um, so I think the systemic there's a systemic risk about AI, uh, where it resides, who operates it, and and how um, deleterious it can end up being if we get into a full scale sort of information war on a global scale I think maybe another systemic risk is the vast inequality that could I mean it's here already it's been exacerbated by Covid but it could be exacerbated so much more now by the use or abuse of technology or the access that people don't have to technology so the the implication for inequality and not just between sort of the north of the west and the global south um, is huge it's huge even in that na- in nations and regions and people are used to sort of rubbing along side by side but i wonder how long that's going to last if certain stratas of society just don't have access to the kinds of technology that is going to be needed to fulfill you know an everyday life in a digital world you know how are you going to get access to essential services. We've already seen it with the COVID passport to an extent. If somebody doesn't want a COVID passport, um, they may even have natural immunity. Now there's a there's a risk for them that they'll be out of a job. Perhaps they'll never be, never be able to find any way to work if this continues. And then on the global scale, I think we're gonna have a huge amount of migration continuing. We've seen it on the Southern border of America. We've seen it in other places. We've had our own sort of, um, you know, our own challenges with it in in Europe in the past, 2015, 16. Um, But I imagine this with COVID um, is going to create a lot more migration as well. And I'm not sure you'll know better than me where and how that's going to happen. But I think there's lots of people already preparing for that and and trying trying to put some policies in place. But quite frankly, I don't think many policies can really can really overcome that. And I, I wonder how welcoming or not, you know, certain nations are, are going to have to be um, to help everybody in the round. And I'm wondering about a third systemic. I mean, I guess it's the climate. It's the, the work around the climate. Is the climate really an emergency point? Are we really on red alert? I wonder about that. I, I mean, I've always been a conservationist. I always believe in the conservation of the climate. I'm not 100% convinced that we're really in as much an emergency as, as we think. But if we don't sort out this point about energy and we allow China to continue, I know they've said that they're going to pull back on some of their coal-fired stations, but um, I mean, there's two things that could happen here. <laughs> we really could be in an emergency and things get incredibly bad, or we're not in an emergency And actually it becomes very clear that there wasn't as much as an emergency as people thought and i wonder if that's going to if that's going to play with people's heads the cognitive dissonance that some people might end up experiencing because they think that we're in this climate emergency where we only have a very very finite amount of time to correct everything if that doesn't happen i wonder what people how people are going to People are going to respond to that because many people, many people are very, very convinced of that. But if we find out that actually we're in a solar cycle and that actually, if you take it in the round, the earth is actually cooler, not warmer than it has been before, um, I think there's going to be a lot of very confused people. So I don't know. I think inequality, information war, and possibly climate disaster or non disaster.
0: That is a perfect wrap up and by the way, even if we are about to find out uh, whether it's a climate disaster or uh, not, uh, there is certainly an environmental degradation. taking place in all relevant um, socio-economic uh, systems, and that will affect uh, all the, uh, the rest of systemic risks that you've actually mentioned, because that would mean that people will have to move towards uh, more wealthy nations, uh, you know. To find jobs, exactly. Mm. Migration will increase, uh, the scarcity of water and other resources will, inc- will in fact increase. So basically everything is interconnected uh, the one way or the other, and uh, which also means that the some of the systemic risks will uh, get further accelerated by the, by the factors you've outlined, which is uh, really really something to worry about. But there are also uh, major shifts taking place right now in uh, society, in politics, in economics, in technology. Would you like to also to point to some of these major shifts that you actually pay attention to uh, in your, um, in your uh, future scenarios or in your also trends analysis uh, is something that really Uh, catches your your attention when it comes to the shifts of change?
1: Well one of the interesting things I think is that um, there's obviously a big trend in demography um, with populations becoming older and younger populations who um, are really going to bear the burden of looking after those the, the older populations that are getting increasingly older, um, but then of course with everything that's happened with covid and the um, quantitative easing and the economic um, solutions that governments thought they were finding we've burdened future generations even more <laughs> uh, financially so i mean that that is a, that is another huge worry but the changing demography is coming at an interesting time where not everyone, but there are some key figures in culture who are promoting immortality. So at the same time that we seem to have, um, we have some challenges around an ageing population. Yeah, all the the challenges that, that that's going to bring, we've got some billionaires thinking and talking about and requiring investment for a huge amount of work in sort of literally immortality. So we've got this strange attitude towards health, wellness, and the cycle of life and death, I think at the minute. And it's almost like we uh, culturally, we've become afraid of dying, afraid of giving up, afraid of the cycle of renewal. And I think that's kind of interesting. And also, it could have some quite Quite big consequences it's almost like it's following the shape of our attitudes towards technology that we think it's going to be progress forever and it's to the right and upwards on a chart all the way advancing and progressing and getting better over time whereas actually i mean i suppose the social change model that i have is more of a cyclical one there are trends you know things there are more of things there are lesser things things wax and wane over time really like the cycles of nature, and I feel that we're more a part of the cycles of nature, but we are almost transplanting ourselves out of nature into a technocratic, scientific, progressive model, which sees us going on forever. So that's one of the most interesting and quite odd trends, I think. There's, there's, as you all know, there's a huge amount of money, um, investment money, VC money, going into um, longevity um, and one, one wonders where that's going to take us, although of course it tends always to be billionaires who want to go on forever, um, because maybe that's the only challenge they've never been able to overcome. For most people, <laughs> I think they're like, what, 80, 90 100 years might be enough. <laughs> um, so that's, that's an interesting cultural shift. Um, there are some other interesting cultural shifts, I, co- I think, with technology. Uh, a lot of my work i'm I'm complementing some of the models and system thinking that I do with ethnography where I'm talking with and researching with um, people in their own home or in their own communities and doing very qualitative research with them actually increasingly a lot of it is done over apps and done online and people end up recording video diaries or you ask them to do a task and They record that and and maybe talk to you about it um, through digital technology, which is kind of quite perverse, I suppose. But what I'm finding is there's a younger generation who are losing trust in themselves. They're they're losing, I don't know whether they ever had it, but they're losing their sense of instinct um, and their intuition to make good decisions, I feel. And part of this, is because they've been reliant on technology for so long. So whether it's Netflix telling you whatever the the next thing to watch is, or it's uh, Alexa um, turning on your lights or choosing your next music track. Um, I mean, those are flippant examples, but they're everyday examples. I've done lots of research with the younger generation and I'll probably call it, I suppose, their Gen Z, early 20s, where they literally are saying, oh, I would like an algorithm, I would like AI to tell me what um, what best suits me, you know, in terms of fashion, because I'm a bit worried that I'm going to choose the wrong thing for myself. So that's that's kind of, that's weird to me, because I, I suppose I would have thought, well, that's what a best friend is for. You know, <laughs> that's what people around you is for. You may um, look for other people's counsel, but you know, over time, you kind of build up a wisdom about that, and you get to know what suits you and what your style is, and so it shouldn't be that difficult. And I think what's happening is because so many decisions, because we're outsourcing so many decisions to the technology, the technology makes the decision essentially and then the data on that decision feeds back straight to the machine not to the person. I don't think they're building up any sense of wisdom which helps them to act intuitively in the future. So they're not getting the feedback as to whether well that was a good decision or that was a really bad decision that didn't suit you at all, that went really badly, don't buy that again. Um, that feedback doesn't come to them, it goes to, somehow goes to the machine. And so there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole feedback loop that's missing. So I, actually when I was doing one piece of research, a guy said to me, well, I'd really like the fridge to tell me when I've had enough calories that day and lock itself down so that I don't overindulge. And I thought, <laughs> that's fascinating, because if I wanted to go to the fridge and overindulge, I'd have to have a word with myself and maybe there would be an internal battle of wills and then I would have to take action or not and make a decision. Um, They don't want any of, I'm not saying all of them, but it's an interesting insight I think from a lot of my research is that they would rather have the machine regulate them than kind of regulate their own behaviour themselves. And so that again is quite a big shift I think and one can play that out into the future to a point where maybe one isn't making many decisions for oneself in everyday life it's all been outsourced to machines who are seen to be objective but quite frankly are obviously less human and perhaps it does more harm than good in the long term.
0: I think you make a perfect point because people have become too comfortable by depending on technology. I mean, they uh, do not uh, expect, uh, expect you to tell them uh, what uh, to do, um, but meanwhile also how to think, uh, what to feel, and that I think is a dangerous uh, element, uh, which is really new by outsourcing, as you outlined uh, too much uh, power in the hands of technology, that um, <laughs> in the end is, uh, is uh, shaped <laughs> by algorithms and not by the human soul. And I remember, uh, I remember a quote uh, by Huxley uh, from uh, Brave New World, where he actually, uh, where it was uh, said, uh, I don't want comfort. I want God, I want poetry, I want real danger, I want uh, real freedom, right? Something like that, which I think is now also being transmitted more or less to to technology to tell you how to feel, to create Mm -hmm. fake emotions Mm -hmm. uh, for human beings.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right, fake emotions. That's what emotional AI is really. I mean, you can see it in the way that they train the data um, and build it in. They're tra- training the data on a very sort of flat, thin veneer of emotions. They can't be complex. They can only be nuanced. They can only lack nuance in order for them to be sort of boxed up and used as training data. So it's it's never going to, to really work. Um, I think you can have AI helping you to some degree in this space if it's in uh, a kind of digital assistance at work one can understand that because these are this is more about productivity perhaps than it is about emotion not not altogether but essentially you're trying to complete and achieve things in a, in a more work environment <coughs> rather than feel and um, and relate uh, in your uh, personal life let's say but yeah so, so that's definitely happening and allied to that I think is, is this idea that um, of these virtual worlds being, I find this fascinating that the virtual worlds that this generation are kind of tinkering with and exploring in and developing their own kind of uh, personas in are real worlds. So virtual influencers are seen as real friends, even though they are not a real physical being, it doesn't really matter because the story of their life that you can follow on all of these different platforms and to an extent be involved and engaged with is as real as anything that happens in real life so that's another very interesting cultural and societal trend and it's what's it's what's partly what's making us so interested in these virtual and fictional worlds because we can build them with the values and the standards that we want rather than the values and standards that we end up uh, experiencing in real life if we don't like those values and standards in real life we actually have to get into a messy complex con- uh, confrontation with somebody or we have to learn how to persuade others to our point of view where well, you can sidestep all of that if you're in a fictional world where you're literally constructing the ethics or the values or the standards and even placing the people only the people you want in it in it so i think you know Our expectations of how difficult or easy life should be or how well designed it is to our own desires um, is changing again. And we're seeing a real pulling away between the real world and the narrative of the fictional world. Um, And again, who knows what that is doing to to um, to our mental states, to our psychology. It's going to be a fascinating 20 years time, 30 years time going to be fascinating to, to see the impact of that, I think.
0: And moving from the level of uh, society uh, to the level of uh, nations, um, we are also in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution. So going back to the historical developments uh, from the previous industrial revolutions, we have uh, particular knowledge about the victor of any of this uh, industrial uh, revolutions as uh, that means the power, the nation that has been riding the previous industrial revolutions was also the power that could impose global norms, uh, rules and standards and could actually become a kind of a model for globalization. That happened during the time of Great Britain in the 19th century. Uh, That means the expansion extent of of power during uh, that time, was also uh, part of uh, the fact that uh, Great Britain could actually capitalize on the first and second wave of mm-hmm. um, the industrial revolutions, and then US did the very same thing uh, in the in the seventies um, during the competition with the Soviet Union. So, um, who is going to write the fourth industrial revolution? Who is going to be the the winner of this industrial revolution, the fourth one? Is it going to be a decisive uh, factor for also for ruling over the world uh, in a sense? Uh, What is uh, your uh, take on that? And um, also what will change following the fourth industrial revolution? What will remain the same in your view? I guess
1: it depends how you categorize the fourth industrial revolution. I suppose I see it very much in the sense of since the 70s we've been in a kind of I suppose it's like a 50, gosh, 50 years, a 50 year kind of um, paradigm of information technology. Um, following on from sort of the auto, following on from steel, following on from iron, we've had those industrial revolutions. I very much feel like, and I have for a long time, I've been saying for a long time, that we move, we're moving into and have moved into information biology. Um, and I think that's, that's obviously allied to the fourth industrial revolution of you know, the physicality and the biology and the, and the digital, digital nature of everything so um, it's going to be a very interesting paradigm. It's funny in a way that this information biology fourth industrial revolution has kind of been kicked off by Covid which is a biological virus but of course the way in which we think of treating it in a sense has taken all the rules and norms of like software. <laughs> so I think it's the it's a, it's a classic case of that information technology and biology coming together and really signifying this is the start of the fourth industrial revolution properly um, and of information biology as a paradigm. Um, who's going to be the winner is very interesting because in the past it has been nations, of course. I wonder whether it's, it's not really about nations anymore. Maybe it's about the kind of regime or system or governance structures. Maybe the winner ten in the end is a collection of more authoritarian regimes who take the information biology paradigm and use it to their own advantage to control their populations. Or maybe it won't be that at all. Maybe it will be you know, more freedom loving democratic in the past <laughs> liberal democracies. Um, and that actually, um, there's a much more sort of decentralised way of using a lot of these technologies in a way that um, still confers upon people their personal responsibility. Um, so I guess I I wonder whether there's more of a more of a merging of certain certain power brokers or strata in both China and the US, for example. Um, Who could use information biology to their own you know their own means. Um, I know you think that I've heard you talk at length about the bifurcation of the of the world Um, and so one could think well maybe China will win out on this information biology but then maybe you say actually it's the world's military powers it doesn't matter what nation they come from maybe it's the the most powerful military um, parts of many nation states that collect together to actually make a success of, of this uh, fourth industrial revolution. I think one thing's for sure, at the moment it feels like the fourth industrial revolution is certainly creating some kind of new neo-feudalism, some kind of society where it feels like there is for them for them for the mass mainstream, the 80-90% of people, it's some kind of digital slavery. And I think that is the thing that um, we really need to avoid sooner rather than later. And so it's hard for me to see it as, a, as a, like a, a national winner. It feels like there are other powers at play, but you can probably talk obviously much uh, greater expertise about that than me.
0: So probably as you as you make the point, there will be a kind of a merger between a nation um, or between nations and uh, big uh, tech companies in a sense that uh, only that way, it is possible to uh, establish control and uh, in fact become a winner out of the fourth industrial revolution because it won't be sufficient for a nation, for a single nation. To, uh, to ride the wave uh, on their own, even though that if we look at uh, the current uh, state of affairs, uh, the major tech companies in the world are either American or Chinese ones. And there is a very minor share of uh, the rest of uh, international companies um, in that particular sector. But what is obvious is that the big tech is here to stay they the big tech has overwhelmed uh and basically took over from uh, the big uh, oil and from the big banks mm-hmm. and um the question that comes to my mind is what role the big play uh, the big tech will play in the future um but also you mentioned artificial intelligence and um uh, there that, that is uh, an additional question uh, to you what what will be the the real role of artificial intelligence. Where do you place artificial intelligence in in this whole equilibrium?
1: Um, yes. So just um, to finish on the previous point, one of the things that one of the ways I think we can see this shift on the fourth industrial revolution is we're moved from the the um, military industrial complex to the to the. I guess it's the military pharmaceutical complex. It feels very much like that to me, which is the move from industry to information technology and now information biology, and it's the pharmaceutical players that seem to be, at the moment, kind of uh, at the uh, the flagship of that, I guess. Um, Yes, big tech. I mean, it's always struck me as interesting to hear politicians talk about how they're going to regulate and break up big tech. And we've seen these antitrust movements um, come, you know, come into Congress, same in the EU, same in the UK, but nothing ever really happens. <laughs> and the reason it doesn't happen is because the politicians know that they need the big tech platforms to win them votes and to carry out an election for, to enable them to canvass. I mean, it's kind of weird in a way when you think about if you do think about Facebook as a as the size or certainly having the power of a nation state. It's got a lot more customers. If you say it's got 3 billion, 3 billion users on Facebook, then of course, I don't know, the prime minister of the UK needs that, um, needs that platform to get himself reelected. So it's always a, it's an ever moving piece of chicanery or diplomacy um, dealing with big tech, but they never really have been broken up. And we've just seen them get closer and closer together to, to the point where potentially what we're seeing now, depends which way you look at it, but potentially what we're seeing is that some of the big tech platforms are literally carrying out um, the wishes of some Western governments. You know, they're carrying out some of the things that the government can't carry out itself. And so we've sort of outsourced it to tech. And so I'd include things like censorship, Um, anybody going against the official narrative sort of does run the risk of of being censored, does run the risk of being depersoned in the digital environment which on the one hand can feel very trivial but on the other hand it's quite profound because one can lose one's reputation, one's job, one's way of making a living Um, and that is really detrimental to that person. Now it's not the government that's carried that out but it it is the government in a sense through the arm of big tech and you can argue whether you think that's intentional or accidental but nevertheless that's that's what's happening. And so to your point, yes the state and the tech platforms are becoming and not that it, they're one and the same thing but tech platforms are becoming more like nation states and nation states are becoming more like tech platforms and so there is this overlap now where it's difficult to find where the one ends and the, and the next one begins and it's partly because of the belief in technocracy that the successful state of the future is a technological state um, and so I think there is a mind, a mindset which is very similar Um, amongst those platforms and amongst those nation states, which is just bringing them together naturally, organically. And when you have the the population that we have on planet Earth right now, and they all have access to the Internet, it feels very much like there's a sense of I'm not sure we can trust all these people with this tool (laughs) of the Internet. We should turn it back on them and try in lots of subtle and not so subtle ways to control the population. Not necessarily in a malevolent way, but use these technologies to nudge people to the right kind of behavior, which is the kind of lifestyle and kind of behavior and kind of actions that the state and the arm of big tech feel are virtuous and right and good for the the good of all. So definitely we are being coerced by this technology and not just by the tech platforms but by um, by those that we would have hoped would regulate them but have actually used them um, as an arm of
0: government I would say is that fair? Yeah absolutely and I would I just want to ask an additional minor question that is derived from your answer. Are we going to witness a situation or a scenario where the big tech will be replaced by other uh, big actor? I myself anticipate water as uh, the big uh, oil of the 21st century in a sense that we probably will witness a kind of a Privatization of uh, of, um, of uh, water sources. I mean, we have uh, still a very very minor share of uh, water. Uh, sources uh, on uh, planet Earth and with this environmental degradation and you also outline it, this is going to be certainly one of the cases or is it going to be big agriculture or maybe, as you said, also big pharma probably or is big uh, tech uh, going to stay and dominate uh, this space for, for a while?
1: Well, I think you're right in terms of the resources, but I wonder if it's just on Earth. I think the the thing about big tech is the billionaires involved in big tech aren't just interested. I mean, kind of in a way, they're not really interested in Earth anymore. I mean, yes, they'd like to control the population, but they're interested in the opening of the commercial and trade routes out in space and, you know, gaining gold or gaining water from these asteroids. And actually, I think that's the... um, the potential for the future in that we might be thinking about the earth's planetary resources and um, what might happen to those but they're probably thinking about the interplanetary resources because their their heads literally are no pun intended in the clouds in that they have they already understand that we are moving into the cloud and up and off and away from the land. And therefore, why would we be restricted in terms of anything that was done, any resources that need to be gathered, any um, any laws and regulations that now need to apply, um, any technology that needs to um, be implemented, I'm pretty sure they're thinking about it in an interplanetary context. And as we know, they're already thinking about the internet as an interplanetary. Um, connectivity network connectivity and so who's going to win out there it'll certainly be some of the big tech players that we know now but there will also be new players come into the into the, the system the enhanced interplanetary system I think um, so I'm sure Bezos is is ready for a new and uh, vibrant challenger in that um, sort of enlarged worldview. I think
0: and speaking of uh, new feudalism uh, 2.0, which you also outlined, I remember when, uh, in fact, Bezos went to space, that there was a there was a lot of bashing coming from organizations and uh, from the society, how the Earth's wealthiest person, um, yeah. basically worth over 200 billion uh, U.S. dollars, uh, thanked his customers. <laughs> and also his employees uh, even though that he's no longer now with amazon but he basically thanked all of them uh financing it uh, financing his trip yeah. while we know that the median wage the average wage probably is below 3, 30,000 uh, us dollars uh, a year which is absolutely ridiculous thing to do but uh, it well, perfectly fits <laughs>
1: We don't do anything about it, and the and the politicians don't regulate it in the correct way, so we just go on,
0: which perfectly fits into this scenario that you've outlined uh, for us. Um, you know, by giving so many examples, also on um, on. Our- possible or alternative uh, futures. And speaking of uh, futures, there is one specific uh, future I would like to touch upon and that is linked to your book, The Future of You. Uh, can your identity survive 21st century technology? So your book explores a lot uh, uh, the, the, the way how emerging technologies uh, such as the AI are in fact affecting um, personal identity. So, is your identity is your identity going to survive the twenty first century technology? <laughs> that's my first question. And whose identity is going to survive? <gasps> whose identity is not going to survive?
1: <laughs> that's that's such an interesting way of putting it. I hope it survives long enough for this show because we'll, we'll be in trouble, won't we? If my identity, if I turn up like that guy who was in that. Um, that legal hearing, who he turned up as a cat. Uh, do you remember that? Did you remember? He was like, I'm not, I'm here, I'm not a cat. It was kind of funny, but it was also um, a signal of something, a profounder shift actually, of you never know who's going to turn up and what they're going to look like and if they are really who, they, who you think they are. Um, yeah, so um, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because back in 2016, to cut a very long story short, Um, I'd been receiving emails from Facebook to my email account, but then they were addressing me as Byron Loweth, a guy in his 30s by the looks of things, and they suggested, it was going on and on and on, they were suggesting I change my login details, I couldn't log into Facebook. So um, I put my passport in trying to get re-verified for Facebook and Facebook came back and said you are not Tracy Follows. And I was like, that's interesting because I'm pretty sure I am. Also my Facebook feed literally has everything I've done every day for however many years. Um, And uh, it made me understand that the machines were reading our identity and actually the machines were authenticating us, not us authenticating ourselves. And so I started to realize that, that we got a distributed identity that was all over the internet in all these little fragments and we didn't have much control over some aspects of it and also how would we actually sort of gather it back in and um and that's how it started really and then you're right in the book i do um think about the authentication in terms of whether we're going to get digital identities whether there's going to be a global digital identity or whether it will be down to nation states at the moment as you know nation states are sort of taking it on a national basis so in india and china there's a very much more fully formed sort of ident- uh, digital identity system. Here in the UK, it's a much more fragmented or federated system, although at the moment there seems to be seem to be moving towards something that feels a little bit more centralized. And then you've got all the guys who, um, who have Bitcoin talking about decentralized identities, and actually, can we exit the system that we're in, in the, at the moment, and can we literally um, bypass that system and create a self-sovereign identity that is down to the user to control and has privacy built in. Um, And some people think that's a little bit more anonymous um, than a centralized identity that might be um, organized or officiated by a, a national government. I mean, there are pros and cons for all these different models and I go through them in the book, but I would suggest that those who, And that's a very simple way of putting it, but those who can um, arrange a decentralized identity are better placed to protect their identity in the future. Because I think once you hand over so much personal data to some central authority, be it a nation state or not, then you obviously don't have as much autonomy over your identity as you would have. Um, and And the system is very dependent then or whatever that central authority <laughs> feels like doing. You know, it feels quite a fragile system for you as the end user. I'm not saying that decentralized systems of identity are are uh, bulletproof in any way. Um, they're not. Com- they're not anonymous, um, and they're not completely unconnected, obviously, to to the state or to the tech platforms that enable any of these digital wallets or whatever. But at least you get some sort of choice over. amount and type of personal information that you use in any particular circumstance and that you can take your data with you should you sort of um, wish to leave a service or a utility, Um, they don't hang on to that data. So there's that in a kind of functional transactional sense and then there is the there is the idea that our health data for the common good needs to be shared in sort of publicly facing biobanks or needs to be aggregated in some way so that governments or, or nation states can better understand their population and surveil the health of the population on an ongoing basis. And again, I'm not so sure about that because I'm, I'm not sure that that is really um, it, it may benefit the common good. It may benefit the public in general. But is it to the detriment of the individual? I don't particularly want to be giving over health data all the time, not knowing who's going to have it and what's what they're going to do with it. Um, and we've just had in the UK a health security agency set up, which is fascinating, actually, when you read the policy paper on it. Um, It's supposed to be set up for infectious diseases um, in the light of COVID, but it also mentions any sort of general public harms. And I think, well, that that literally covers anything. So whether it's a a psychological effects you might be undergoing, or whether it's you don't believe the official narrative, or whether it's something physical about your medical condition, it definitely feels to me like an overreach from the overstate um, to get involved with your personal health um, on the predicate that it's for the public good and it's for the protection of the public good and so that really does this is the biosecurity state sort of safetyism in extremis um, and I think the longer we can try and uh, resist against any of that then the more likely we are to um, protect our own identities if you give over a lot of that information. I mean, it's the kind of information that is that is wanted to build the the right bioweapons, the kinds of bioweapons that can target certain demographics or certain groups of people. Um, and who wants to be in a world like that? So I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about that, to be honest.
0: Well, this is a fascinating question because I also consider the trend of uh, basically genetically modifying human organisms and also the trend of uh, transhumanism that means also implanting chips on uh, human brains as something that is quite dangerous in a sense that we do not have control over the development. We do not know in which direction it goes. Yeah. And
1: so, Yeah, I, I am a fan of this idea of morphological freedom that you, you have body autonomy, and you should be able to live out your life in any substrate you want. So whether you want to upload your brain or whether you want to um, completely change gender or whatever it is, morphological freedom for the individual is is completely understandable. Um, What is difficult is that in order to achieve any of that you're, you've, got to re, you've got to rely on technological tools and those belong to somebody. So if you want to, I don't know, learn a new language and you want to do it, you, you haven't got that many years left and you want to do it by implanting it straight into your brain. So I can speak to you in German or French, which I don't speak naturally, let's say. I've got to, I've got to rely on somebody, I've got to rely on a tech platform to implant that into my brain. And then I'm potentially reliant on them forever because who knows what terms of service I've signed up to. It's not like just scrolling through your photos on a social media app. It's literally like, you know, the, uh, the way I talk about it is that the, we used to visit the internet and make use of AI and now it's visited us and it's, wi- it's within ourselves. So we've always had the psychology of the self and the biology of the self and that has now been joined by the technology of the self. And I don't think we quite realise the ramifications um, of us having a technological self, um, because it's difficult to have one when we don't own or control the technology that is uh, helping us to achieve the technological self. It's always going to, it's always going to come back to a platform and their terms of service, which, as we know, can change overnight.
0: And given that. Given these developments, are we going to witness also something that I called the digital inquisition of the human soul? Oh Yes, I
1: think I don't know exactly what you mean, but I can guess that exactly. In fact, um, I wrote something the other day about this um, digital phenotyping, where um, the devices around you are collecting data from you, personal data from you all the time but also they're collecting data from the environment around you because they obviously can pick that up. They put it all together and they start to diagnose you um, and it's, it's gone beyond tracking and monitoring into diagnosis which is interesting because again that's the language of biology and, and med and uh, healthcare um, not just information technology. So again another signal that we're in the yeah, um, information biology paradigm. So yes, and as we heard, I think only two days ago, Amazon now want to monitor us whilst we're asleep. So that's nice. Um, <laughs> um, it's for our own benefit, obviously. <laughs> uh, so they can sell us stuff, well, if you dream if you dream of a new deck chair, yeah, <laughs> they'll have sold it to you by the time you've
0: woken up. <laughs> what comes next then, telling us our wet trims in the morning, probably? <laughs> Probably,
1: I imagine they'll just um, they'll make those public on your news feeds um, whilst you're asleep. <laughs> I mean, we've got we've got on Twitch now um, many uh, people sitting watching other people sleep for hours and paying even to watch other people sleep. It is fascinating.
0: So data is. Uh definitely something that is going to uh, remain a big issue. Who is collecting it? Who is having control over it? Uh, Who is using it against whom, be it nations, corporations, or uh, individuals? Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to learn more more about these topics, you definitely have to uh, buy the book uh, of Tracy Follows um the future of you can your identity survive 21st century technology tracy i really want to thank you for this wonderful conversation if you have uh, probably a, some kind of a final final remarks or final uh, final words for us uh, in a sense to give us a maybe a little bit of more optimistic uh, picture yeah. of the world uh, the floor is yours fair (laughs) enough the answer to the question
1: can your identity survive 21st technology is yes it's just that we need to be much more aware of some of the things that are going on at the moment debate and discuss them more and if we're not happy with them lobby the people who have the power and influence to change to help us change things and um, resist Um, What we know will end up in a sort of technological tyranny, but it's perfectly possible and doable. We just need to be more aware of it and more action orientated about it. So that's that's what I that's that's what I was hoping to achieve in the book. So just to make more people aware.
0: And this is, I think, a perfect ending. I can only call sign, find your tribe, your community, your like-minded people to actually be more active, uh, more also um, aware about all of these trends, all of these uh, possible uh, risks, uh, which also are not uh, final. Uh, We determine our future. And our actions or non-actions actually determine the future, right?
1: Yes, that's right. An alternative future (laughs) to the dystopian one.
0: (laughs) And the alternative ones, right. So uh, you've been listening to and watching Tracy Follows. She's a futurist. You can find her on Twitter under Tracy Futures. Uh, You can also check her webpage, tracyfollows.com. Thank you very much for your excellent insights. Thank
1: you, Vilena. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bharatwarta podcast. If you want to see more content like this, then don't forget to subscribe to our channel. We started Bharatwarta to facilitate long-form discussions on politics, policy, and culture. We don't necessarily endorse anything that was said in this episode. If you wish to offer us feedback, do reach out to us on social media. We are at Bharatvarta on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You could also get in touch with us on our website, www.baratvarta.in. The links are in the description below. Until next time, stay safe, take care, and Jai.